Word serve, let's do this. All right. Well, uh, first of all, thanks. It's great to be back with you guys. I guess the last time wasn't too horrible, um, or else you wouldn't have invited me back, but that could have been a fluke. So we'll see how today goes. But anyway, I'm going to start off kind of with a question for you guys. It's going to be way out of left field. How many of you watch uh, Saturday Night Live? Does anybody watch that show anymore? Yeah, like one person. I don't watch it either. I sometimes like see a video on the internet the next day, but I don't, I don't really think anybody actually watches that show anymore. But back in the day they used to, and I used to watch it, and there was a skit that I really liked. It was one of my favorite ones. It was called uh, Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. Do any of you remember that? So some of you remember that. So what would happen is, like in between the skits, they had this short little thing where this guy, Jack Handy, would offer up these deep thoughts. And they would have like this serene picture of like nature, you know, or something. And he would offer this deep thought for you to ponder. And it would be something like this. It would be like, you know, if you go flying back through time and then you see somebody else flying forward into the future, well, then it's probably best to avoid eye contact. Okay, see, no reaction at all. So sometimes, sometimes these deep thoughts that this Jack Handy would offer up, you would laugh at him right away. Because you'd get it. You'd get what he was saying right away. It'd be very funny to you right, right immediately. But then sometimes you have to sit there. You have to sit there for about five minutes, and then you'd sort of sink in, and then you'd get it, and maybe you'd chuckle a little bit. Quite often, like that one I just shared with you, there would be no reaction. And you'd think about it for days, and you still wouldn't react to it. And you'd say, you know... Am I not laughing because it's not funny? Or am I still just missing something? So today's sermon's probably gonna be a little bit like that. You may get it right away. You may get it a little bit sometime later, or you may never feel like there was any value to this in the first place. I don't, I, you know, I can't solve that for you, but we'll see how it goes. But I'll tell you, my whole time of being a Christian, there is a story in the Bible that has sort of haunted me. And when I read this story, I know that it's of huge importance. I know that it's trying to teach me something about the nature of God and also teach me something about myself. And I know this story is supposed to be a really big deal. And yet I would be hard-pressed to tell you that I, I feel like I actually understand this story. And so I visit it every so often. And as I get older, as the years go by, as I gain more experience as a Christian, as I gain more experience in life, there's all these nuances that come out of this story that I become aware of. And so I'm always continually intrigued by this story, but also at the same time sort of distressed by it because I, I, I can't really parse out its exact meaning, what the exact lesson is from it. So this story has been on my mind lately. And I heard a great podcast on it the other day from the Bible Project guys. Do any of you guys listen to Bible Project? Um, I know when people give you books or things to read or sources, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But I will say these, the Bible Project is excellent. They have a podcast. They have a bunch of videos and things. Very good stuff. But anyway, I want to give credit where credit was due because I listened to this podcast. And there were a whole lot of insights they had into this story that um, I'm going to inject into this sermon. Now, you may be wondering what story I'm talking about, and I'm going to tell you in just a little bit, but right now I'm enjoying far too much the mystery of all this, so I'm going to leave you hanging for a little bit longer. And first of all, I want to ask you a different question. I want to ask you this. What, what do you want most in life? 
Now that's sort of a rhetorical question. I don't expect you to shout out answers. I really don't need you to. Now, you guys might have a really good answer to that question. But I think if I went out in the world and I asked that question to the majority of people and I said, you know, what do you want most in life? I already know what their answer would probably be. And what's fascinating about it is the answer is obvious, but yet it's also kind of bogus. So if I went out and I asked people, what do you seek most in life? Or what is it that you want most in life? What do you think most people would say? Of course, they would say, I want to be happy. I want happiness. That's the most important thing in life. But I want to I want to push back on that a little bit. I want to challenge that. Because let's say that you came into your possession a magic lamp, and you, you rubbed the lamp three times, and the magic genie popped out and said, I'll give you three wishes. And let's say you said, you know what? I don't even need three of them. I just need one. I just want to be happy. And so let's say there's kind of a cloud of smoke, and then suddenly you find yourself sitting on a street corner. And you have no possessions, and you're just kind of wearing a simple loincloth or maybe just a sheet to cover your body, and you rely on the generosity of others for food. But let's say as you sit there, you are perfectly content, and you are at peace, and you would say, in this moment, I'm truly happy. So if that was a glimpse of your future from the genie, would you ask for your money back? Would you say, no, 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 that is not what I had in mind when I said, I want to be happy. So in truth, when we say we want to be happy, there's a lot of things that go along with that, that we envision for ourselves, that we have these things in our life that, that will make us happy. We, we have an idea of what happiness should look like. Well, if you've ever noticed, if you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't really speak about happiness all that much. So when the people of God, when they cry out to the Lord for different things, you, 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 you don't hear them cry out and say, God, just please make me happy. Like, I, I'm not a, I don't know if I'm aware of that being anywhere in the Bible. But what you do hear people cry out for all the time is they repeatedly ask for God's blessing. God, bless me. Provide these blessings. So how does the Bible define what a blessing is? Well, in order to know that, it's actually, you can go all the way back to the beginning. You go back to Genesis 1, the creation account. And in the very beginning, in chapter 1, in verse 28, it says this. It says, then God blessed them, talking about human beings, after he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. And then rain over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So from this verse, and then also from some of the surrounding verses in the context, you get a sense that there are really three major things that um, would qualify as God's blessing. So first of all, in that, he says, be fruitful and multiply. So the ability to reproduce and to gather more children for yourself and to create a legacy, that was a great blessing. So think about it. Back in the early, early days of human civilizations, were there governments, were there police forces, were there all these people you could hire to work for you, all that kind of stuff? That didn't exist. So you only had your family. So the bigger your family was, the more strength and protection you had, the more hands you had to go out and work the land or shepherd the livestock, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so the ability to have children was a really big, you know, it was a big deal, and this was seen as a great blessing. 
that God allows us to reproduce and fill the earth. So there's that. That was the first blessing. Then the other blessing is that human beings will be placed in a position of authority in this world. So as human beings, we are meant to be the distributors of God's grace on this earth. We are meant to manage his resources. So authority and the power that comes with that, these are also a blessing from God. That's the second one. And then the third one is that these blessings, these resources on the earth, they're going to be provided in abundance. So to be blessed by God is to have abundance. So have kids, have authority, have abundance. These are the blessings. Now, on the flip side of this, it's made very clear to us that if people don't seek their blessings from God, if they seek their blessings according to their own means or from some other source, what this actually does is the, the reverse thing happens. It actually brings a curse upon them. It brings a curse upon those around them, and it brings a curse upon the earth at large. So if you know the biblical story, what you know is that people very quickly, after God creates them, they quickly go off the rails. Sin enters into the world, and people become obsessed with only doing sin and evil continuously. That's what the scriptures tell us. So finally, I, I guess God has had enough of this, and he wants to throw us as human beings, he wants to throw us a lifeline. So that we can get our relationship with him back on track. So God, if you remember, if you're a student of the Bible, you remember this. God chooses this man who would eventually become known as Abraham. And he says, you're going to be my representative on this earth. And through Abraham, God is going to bless the entire world. Now, do you remember the big gift or the big promise, the blessing that he said he would give to Abraham? When he made that covenant with him? God said, he said, I'm going to bless the world through you. And he says, here it is. He says, then your offspring are going to number like the stars in the sky. So in other words, God promised Abraham that he would be fruitful and multiply big time, like turned up to 11. You're going to be very fruitful. So here you have Abraham. He's a direct descendant of Noah. And he's now keenly aware of this place that he has in God's grand plan of salvation. And then he has a son named Isaac. And Isaac then in turn has a son named Jacob. Now, it's Jacob's story. I'm giving you some background on all this stuff. But it's Jacob's story in one particular part of this story that I'm really interested in here today. Now, if you remember, Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, he's part of this blessing from God. That the whole world's going to be blessed through him and his family line. So it would have been very distressing to Isaac to know that God wants him to be a blessing to the world and have all this offspring, but yet his wife, Rebecca, can't have children. And having children is what this blessing is all about. So Isaac, what does he do about that? Well, to his credit, he knows that God has made promises, and God always delivers on his promises. But then he also remembers his father's mistake. So his father, Abraham, his wife, Sarah, she couldn't conceive children either. But what did Abraham choose to do in that situation? Do any of you remember? He says, well, you know, uh, God, you promised me all these children, but my wife can't have children. So he figures out a workaround to that problem. He says, I'm just going to take one of my servants and I'm going to have children with her. 
Problem solved, right? Except that causes all sorts of problems. So what Isaac does is he takes that lesson and he says, you know what? I have a great idea. I'm just going to pray to God. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask him for children. Imagine that. So he prays to God for children and God blesses him. And his wife, Rebecca, becomes pregnant with twins. Now, uh, God tells her that these two children that she's going to have will be the beginning of two separate great nations. But he says one nation is going to be stronger than the other. And the older son is actually going to serve the younger son. Now, you can look all this up for yourself. This is in Genesis chapter 25. So the two sons in Rebekah's womb, if you remember, it's Jacob and Esau. And Rebekah would cry out to the Lord because Jacob and Esau would be inside of her when she was pregnant, like wrestling and struggling and fighting inside of her. I'm sure it was very uncomfortable. Constantly they were going at each other. So when it comes time for her to give birth, Esau is the one who's born first. So he's the oldest. So he comes out of the womb, and then what's interesting is Jacob comes out, but Jacob is holding on to Esau's heel, like his hands on it. He's tugging at it. It's like he's trying to tug him down so he can pull him back so he can be first, so he can come out first, so he can be the oldest. So because that happens, they named him Jacob, because his name Jacob literally, that literally means heel grabber, which is like a euphemism for Someone who is a cheater or a deceiver. Someone who likes to trick their way through life. That's Jacob. So here is Jacob, who I want to talk about today. He's the heir to this great blessing that God has bestowed upon his family line. He's the younger sibling, which in normal culture would mean that he would be lesser than his older brother. But here God is saying... No, you're actually going to be greater than your brother. I'm going to bless you, and you'll become the greater nation. And your older brother is going to serve you. So Jacob has all of this going for him. And yet, at his core as a human being, Jacob, by his very nature, is a liar. He's a cheat. He's a manipulator. He's a charlatan. That's who he is. Those aren't exactly qualities that we would call fruits of the Spirit, right? Is that somebody we want to try to emulate? No. So despite having all these built-in, pre-existing, and guaranteed blessings from God that are all there for him, for the taking, something inside Jacob just can't help but to carve out his own destiny for himself. So yeah, he wants all those blessings from God, and then he wants a little extra on top of that. I guess that's what the Cajuns call a land yap, is that right? I'm kind of new to this parts, but uh, he wants all that, but he wants it all on his terms. So one day, for those of you that know the story, Jacob and Esau, his older brother, uh, they have an interesting encounter. So Esau is somebody who liked to be out in the wilderness. He was a man of nature. He was a hunter, and he liked to be with the animals and be outdoors all day long. So Esau has been out in the fields all day hunting. And he comes back in, and he's starving. Now, Jacob wasn't somebody like the outdoors. He would just stay back in the tents. So Jacob's back in the tent, and he's cooking up some stew. And so Esau comes in, and I'm quoting here verse 30. This is in chapter 25. 
Esau rolls up to Jacob and he says, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. So give me some of that red stuff. That's what he says. He's talking about the stew, is the red stuff. So Jacob says, all right, well, I'll give you some, but first you've got to sell me your birthright. So Esau, in a very impulsive manner, not really thinking or caring about the ramifications of that, he says, well, like, what good is my birthright to me if I'm starving? Like, you know, he's being a little melodramatic here. Like, I'm starving so bad I'm going to die. What good is my birthright to me? So, yeah, just, just whatever. You know, let's do it. Just give me the stew. So he sells, Esau basically what he does, he sells his right to be the firstborn son and all the privileges and all the inheritance that goes with it. He sells all of that to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now, that seems like a pretty underhanded, shady kind of thing for Jacob to do to his own brother. But that's kind of what Jacob was all about. He had no problems with it. Because he was somebody in this life who was going to use his wits and his talents and his gifts he was going to leverage every bit of that to get what he wanted out of life at all times. So then later, when their father Isaac becomes old, and Isaac, his health is failing him, he's already gone blind, and he's about to die, he calls for his son Esau to come to him. So he can, you know, and he says, hey, go out in the fields and hunt some of that wild game and bring it back and cook me a really nice dinner. He says, we're going to have dinner together. And then he says, after that, I'm going to give you my final blessing then before I die. So Esau runs out in the fields immediately so he can go do what his father says. Well, their mother, Rebekah, overhears this. And Jacob has always been her favorite. She wants Jacob to receive the blessing. So she starts cooking up a scheme, right? So Jacob can get it. And she tells Jacob, you know, and Jacob's all for this. He has no problem going along with this scheme because that's kind of what he does. So she tells Jacob, she says, run out and slaughter a couple of goats. She says, I'm going to take the goat meat and meat, and I'm going to make a stew. And then she says, then bring me the goat skins. And she says, I'm going to put them, I'm going to put them on your arms and on your hands and around your neck. And you're thinking, why is she going to put goat skins on them? What's that about? Well, apparently Esau was really hairy. He was like this really hairy guy, and Jacob was not. And because their father was blind, they knew that when he approach the bedside, you know, he'd probably like be feeling on him and stuff, and if he felt Jacob's smooth skin, then the ruse would be up. So they put these smelly goat skins on him, so he'll seem like he's hairy like Esau. Well, I guess that sort of thing works back in biblical times, I don't know. <laughs> but it works. And they trick you know, their way into Jacob receiving this blessing from his father, who was, you know, that it was supposed to go to his older brother. Well, when Esau finds this out, he's none too pleased because his brother has now tricked him twice out of his blessing. And so he vows to kill Jacob. So Jacob now has got to spend the next years on the run. He's got to hightail it out of town, and he's got to go into hiding. So fast forward many years later. Jacob now has many wives. He has a bunch of kids. He has a bunch of livestock, and by all accounts, for that day, he's a very wealthy man. And he's prospered, and his prosperity has come as a result of his extraordinary ability to trick and manipulate all of his circumstances. Now, it turns out that people tend to get mad when you manipulate them. So Jacob finds himself, once again, making more enemies 
and he has to go on the run, and God tells him, you know what, I want you now to return to your homeland. So he starts making his way back to his homeland. Now, who do you think's out there waiting for him? Standing there between him and home. Well, it's his brother Esau's out there waiting. And so Jacob finds out that Esau and 400 of his men are out there on their way to meet him. And Jacob is terrified because he knows his brother's going to kill him. So Jacob begins scheming. How can I get out of this? How can I trick my way out of this? And he doesn't really know what he's going to do yet, but he's like, I've always figured things out. I've always figured, you know, I'm going to, something will come to me. So in the meantime, they get to this stream. I don't know if it's a river or a stream or whatever it is. And he sends all his family and all his possessions across the stream. And he says, you know, I want all you guys to go first. I'm going to make sure you're safe, and then I'll come last. So he sends everybody across, and he's on the other side of the stream. And this is where the story that has really haunted me, I want to give you all the context of it so you can understand it. But this is where the story that kind of haunts me, this is where it starts. So it's now nighttime, and Jacob finds himself alone on this other side of the stream. And suddenly this man comes out of the shadows and attacks him. And they start having this life and death struggle. And they're wrestling. And they wrestle and they wrestle. And it goes on and on and on. And it plays out through the entire night until morning is approaching. And neither person is able to gain the other hand, you know, the upper hand on the other. Well, at some point during this struggle, Jacob realizes that he's not wrestling an ordinary man. I, I don't know how this works, but he realizes that he's literally somehow wrestling God. And God tells Jacob to let him go because he says, look, dawn is approaching. Let's be done with this. Let me go. And Jacob tells him that he's not going to let him go until he blesses him, until he gives him a blessing. So I guess God has had enough. I don't know what it is. So the scripture says that he then touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh and dislocates Jacob's hip, severely injuring him. Now, have you ever heard that term hollow of the thigh? Where on the body exactly is that? Well, let's just say this. God essentially punched Jacob in the Holy of Holies, I guess, if you know what I'm getting at. Um, the hollow of the thigh is the Old Testament euphemism for like a man's private parts. And God punches him so hard that it actually makes his leg come out of the socket of his hip. Now that tends to end a fight right there under normal circumstances, but Jacob is still not going to let him go. So then this is really interesting. God then says to him, he says, what is your name? And he replies, Jacob. And God says, no, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have wrestled with God, and you have wrestled with man, and you have prevailed. And then God blesses him. So this name Israel literally means wrestles with God. So as a Christian, you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God is here saying that the defining characteristic of his people that represent him in the world is that they wrestle continuously with the reality of who he is. It's rather interesting to me. So here are the questions to ponder about the story as you leave. So even though Jacob was keenly aware of his birthright, 
he would have known all of these various ways that God was going to bless him. He would have been taught this stuff. But he still chose to ignore that and generate his own blessings in life. So as God's chosen one, he ignores God. He chooses to ignore him or he only uses God when it suits him. And yet despite that, despite having that disrespectful attitude towards God, God still refuses to give up on him and forsake him. So when Jacob is face to face with God after this lifetime of scheming and cheating his way through life, God gives him a chance to give up this struggle. But Jacob refuses. And he says, instead, no, I'm going to wrestle the blessing out of you, God. I'm going to make it happen. So God punches him in the groin. Now, all the men in the house know that that will quickly end the fight right there. But is that why God hit him in that particular place? You know, it's interesting that God chose that location. He chose the source, the, the biological source of Jacob's fruitfulness. Now, Jacob only has one child after this story. And all his other kids were born before that. And it's, it's very possible a lot of scholars believe that his wife was already pregnant with their final child before this event happens. So it's very possible that what God just did from him is he took away his ability to have children ever again. He took away his ability to create blessings for himself. From now on, from that point forward, if, if Jacob was going to receive blessings, it was going to be very clear who it was coming from. It was going to come from God and God alone. So I'll tell you, fairy tales have happy endings. At least I guess most of them. But the Bible is no fairy tale. You know, the Bible is a story of real people wrestling with their relationship with a very real God. Now, in this story, there isn't really a happy ending in the way that you would normally think of it. You see, after this encounter with God, Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. There's always a, rem a reminder to him of what happened there in this encounter with God. Now, if you follow his story as it plays out, you know, through the rest of Genesis until his eventual death as an old man, he always seems to be a bit sad or melancholy about his life. He doesn't strike you as the guy who has sort of finally seen the light and God's blessings bring him this great joy. No, rather, he seems to be a person who was chosen by God, but yet he's presented as a tragic figure because he can never find peace in that role. He seemed like someone who most wanted, quote, happiness in life. And in his mind, he seemed much happier when he was still Jacob, the trickster, rather than Israel, the man who wrestles with God and with men and who prevails. So that's not an easy story to digest. What are you supposed to do with that? So what I want to leave you with here, uh, I want to leave you with answers. I don't know that I have any. But I want to leave you with four kind of deep thoughts of your own to take home with you. These are my Jack Handy deep thoughts, only this isn't comedy, this is real life. So ponder these things as you go home this week. Let's put the first one up. What happens when human beings' stubbornness and desire to do things their own way collides with God's desire for grace, mercy, and blessing? That's number one. Deep thought number two, why do we fight 
and claw and scheme and cheat to acquire something that is already ours for free. Deep thought number three. As a Christian, you are a chosen one of God. Will he have to wound you for you to receive his blessing? And finally, we'll end with this deep thought. Number four. If God asked you today for your name, what would you say? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for your holy scriptures, the truth that is presented to us. And Lord, as we wrestle with our nature, we wrestle with our relationship with you, allow us to see that doing things your way is always the better path. Let us accept the gifts that you have given us, the blessings that you provide for us. Let us take those things. And, and feel joy over those and be fulfilled by those. Let us be willing to take our very nature and be submissive to you, lay it at your feet and allow you to change us in a way that we can come out on the other end and, and we can now have character that resembles the character that is in Jesus Christ. So Father, our prayer today that you would change us, that you would transform us, and that somehow we could cease to be our own enemy, our own stumbling block in this life. Father, thank you for all that you do. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.